anybody who had caddy in a, mostly a private club, they thought would be potentially good sales reps because you get to listen and you had to deal with different levels of people. You might be dealing with a CEO one day and then, you know, a, a cop or a fireman the next. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Eastman McGovern. Eastman enjoyed a 35-year career in IT sales and sales management, managing district regional as well as worldwide sales teams on both a domestic and international scope. His experience includes selling and managing for Fortune 500 companies as well as experience with startup organizations. In his career, Eastman estimates that he hired over 400 sales team members and interviewed in excess of 2,000 candidates. His background includes direct sales as well as channel and distribution sales models. He was a part of three mergers where he integrated sales teams on a global basis as well as being part of senior management for a company that successfully completed their IPO. During his career, Eastman had P&L responsibility for North American divisions and managed sales goals in excess of $800 million in sales revenue. Now let's listen as Jeff talks to Eastman. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Eastman McGovern, former executive sales leader at a lot of different tech companies. And full disclosure, uh, Eastman and I met first day in college at Manhattan College. Go Jaspers. Um, Eastman's had a fantastic career, and I can't wait to uh, dig into it. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Eastman. Sure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great. So um, I'd like to start with a, a question uh, that has nothing to do with business uh, or your career. But if your parents were uh, entertaining some guests at the dinner table and they thought you were asleep and one of the guests, you know, asked your parents, hey, you know, how would you describe Eastman? What are some adjectives, you know, to describe the six year old Eastman? And you were awake to hear them. They thought you were sleeping. What 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 would your parents say about yeah. I think they would have said I was active. Um, even back then, I was a little bit athletic, but I was uh, I was very rambunctious. I had uh, at six, I had two brothers and two sisters, and uh, I was drastically different than the four of them. They were more quiet and introverted, and I was more outgoing and always wanted to do something and know what was next and. Uh, they slept a whole lot more than I did back then. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what, uh, 
what got you interested in sports at such a young age? I think in the beginning, it was it was something to do. You know, you would see the older kids leaving school early for practice, or you were able to get with a group of uh, people before school or after school and uh, play, you know, handball against the wall or play wiffle ball. It was just a great way to interact with other kids and, frankly, not have to go home. Exactly. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, we're we're the same age, obviously. Totally uh, agree with that. Um, so uh, obviously, I know you uh, um, as we you know went through college together and remained friends. So I, you were the best uh, fundamentally sound basketball player I ever played with. But was basketball always your favorite sport? Always. It, yeah. um, I think it it was my favorite because I could do it by myself in the beginning. You know, my dad put a hoop up in the back and I just shot basketballs all day and all night. Plus, from a young age, I was, I was OK. I was pretty good. Or I was not very good at baseball and things like soccer hadn't emerged in the U.S. I'd never heard of lacrosse. Right. So, you know, basketball kind of became my thing. And more importantly, you could play all year. So what about water skiing? Water skiing was something I, uh, I didn't try until later. Uh, that's great. So um, again, you know, having played basketball with you many times uh, in college and afterwards, you were just always a very smart basketball player. And how did you hone that skill? Cause um, obviously you can shoot all day long, but you have to play to be, get smart. How did, how did that come to in uh, fruition? I remember going to a basketball camp when I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, the leagues were up where you where you live, John V. Maris CYO Sports Camp, Putnam Valley, New York. Right. And the college, the coaches were either college players or uh, young college coaches. Mike Shashevsky, when he was at Army, was one of the counselors. And uh, the leagues were the NBA, the ABA, college, and, and high school. And I started in the ABA. I was the only, I guess, sophomore in the ABA. By the end of the second day, I was down in the high school league. Mm. And uh, one of the coaches had told me, uh, and this is an exact quote, White suburban jump shooters are a dime a dozen. You got to figure out how to move the ball and pass the ball and engage your teammates more. I guess they called us chuckers back in the day, but I never met a shot I didn't like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that had a great impact. And I found out you got quicker, you got picked quicker in the, in the pickup games at night. If you could distribute the ball, play a little bit of defense and not just kind of worry about yourself. Um, and, and it always stuck in my mind, even as I progressed through my career, you, you couldn't be so focused on, on yourself. You, you had to kind of be focused on everything around you. Right. 
So, uh, so you had a, uh, I would say, a, a good career at uh, Monsignor Farrell High School in uh, Staten Island, correct? Now, yeah. uh, what were some of your uh, career highlights in basketball in high school? Well, we were the first uh, team from Staten Island to uh, make it into the CHSA playoffs in New York City. Oh, wow. So uh, our first game, we played uh, – Mata Christie, who had a guy by the name of Red Bruin, who went to Syracuse. Guy by the name of Phil Tiny Smith, who's a four-year starter at New Mexico. And the guy I covered happened to be a freshman. His name was Vern Fleming, and he played about 17 years in the NBA. And right. I guess if there was a betting line then, would have been Mata Christie by 30. Uh, we, we beat him in double overtime. Wow. Uh, first time any Catholic school from Staten Island had won a game. Um, then we played Cardinal Hayes, who had a guy named Jimmy Black, who unfortunately I tried to cover. Jimmy Black was the uh, point guard on the champion, Dean Smith's first championship team in North Carolina. And uh, he had, uh, he didn't have that many on me in the first half. I think he had 28 in, in the first, <laughs> in the first half. That's the first half. <laughs> the first half, right? <laughs> yeah. Halftime, uh, coach had said to me, you know, Dean Smith's here, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, <laughs> you can start covering the guy now. <laughs> so, you know, we had lost that. But um, I think that experience was Farrell had great teams. But, you know, we great players. I think that we had great players. There's an award in Staten Island called the Jake's Award. It goes to the most outstanding player um, in Staten Island. An interesting, something very interesting, uh, Farrell has had six of them. And five of the six came from my parish. Wow. They all played for Our Lady Queen of Peace. Wow. So it, it was kind of interesting where you can see a foundation a queen of peace we started in the second grade wow little i wouldn't even call it intramurals you know it was uh practices and fundamentals and clinics and then third and fourth grade you were playing intramurals and fifth grade you played cyl so it was a, a very basketball centric parish and 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 school and um you know, back then, we didn't really understand, or I didn't understand recruiting that there were Division two schools and Division three schools uh, that you that you could attract. And my coach, who was, I'm still friendly with him today, was only seven or eight years older than we were. Wow. So he's a great, great basketball coach. Didn't really know about sending videos, contacting other coaches, didn't have a lot of contacts. And, you know, the good news is if I if he had known then what he knew now, I'm sure for me, he would have contacted a bunch of D3 schools. Then I might not have met you in Manhattan. Exactly. So I'm, glad, I'm glad that didn't happen. But yeah. Yeah. But, so, but that's yeah. one of the that's one of the interesting things now that people you know, if if you're pretty good, um, there's a whole slew of areas you can play. 
Right. Yeah. We were just, I think, used to the, um, you know, the big schools and right. know, UCLA's, the Notre Dame's and watching teams like that play, not even considering, you know, playing it you know, somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so interesting. So, um, so obviously you're, you're competitive. Uh, a lot of salespeople I know played sports. So to help me and we'll get, we'll dive into your kind of your career uh, trajectory, but how do you think, you know, being interested in sports and having the basketball background and, you know, obviously covering a host of uh, great players. Um, how did that shape your professional career in sales and sales leadership? It, it, it's a great question. I remember I had gone to an interview skills workshop when we were going to hire 200 sales reps. When we went out and they sent us to a pretty high end interviewing school and they talked about athletes Look for athletes, you know, look for guys in good shape, you know, look for a 42 regular. And I wasn't a 42 regular then, but I definitely wasn't a 48 regular either. <laughs> and uh, their thought was, you know, competition. You want to be better. You're, you're, you're self-driven. Um, and people who were athletic tend to understand, put in extra time. You know, they always thought that salespeople, the more time you put in, you know, the harder you work, the, the better you could become. And that kind of migrated towards, you know, athletes. And I know if you look at companies like EMC or Computer Associates, who have been known for these hard charging cutthroat sales guys, all athletes. Right. All Team sports, too. You know, they, they weren't going and looking for the guy who was a good golfer. Right. Although I think later on in life, that that all that kind of changed. But, uh, you know, just competitive and a work ethic where you'd go to school and then you'd practice. So it kind of led sales managers or hiring managers to say, you know, this guy's kind of got what we look for the other thing i thought that was interesting in the class was golf caddies anybody who had caddied in a mostly a private club they thought would be potentially good sales reps because you could listen you had to listen and you had to deal with different levels of people you might be dealing with a ceo one day and then you know a, a cop or a fireman the next and I found that was that was pretty good advice too. Yeah, I mean, I you know, you sent over your bio, and uh, I always said, you know, getting great people and hiring great people is a, definitely a skill. And, Absolutely. Um, and I always tell people that salespeople are the hardest people to hire and interview, in my mm -hmm. opinion, because their job is to sell. And you really have to peel away what's the, you know, uh, the real accomplishments versus the bullshit, really. You know, yep. what are they portraying themselves to be? And so, you know, I think you've told me, you know, you interviewed over two to three thousand people, 400 hires, and they're all sales hires. Right. So tell yep. what was your secret in terms of hiring 
uh, salespeople and how did you go about it outside the, you know, athletic and, and obviously the sports minded people, you're not, you probably want the, the strong B player sports wise, because there's the ones that have to try harder the, the naturally talented, not that yeah. Michael Jordan would be applying to a sales position at uh, LS, LSI logic or something, but you know, you, it's probably the p- people that had to work hard. You know, I think good salespeople are susceptible to good salespeople. And I was always susceptible to good salespeople, whether it was interviewing or, you know, and I, I thought people that were prepared, you know, in the business casual days, I always appreciated something who said, who would say, Hey, Mr. McGovern, um, attire, I'd, I'd be happy to come in a suit and tie, you know, whatever. And I said, well, we're casual Fridays, you know, come in casual. You know, guy walks in with a Baltistrol shirt on. Baltistrol golf shirt. Sure. I'm like, uh, oh, wow, Baltistrol, do you play? He goes, oh, I'm a member. Got my attention right away. Right. You know, I, he knew because he called somebody and goes, hey, what do you know about Eastman McGovern? He goes, I like to play golf. Pretty good golfer, you know, yeah. good guy. You know, I worked for him. And the guy kind of knew me and uh, knew what I was about and didn't have to spend all that time kind of getting a rapport because we had one because I'm looking at a bolt stroll shirt. Right. Interesting. The other thing I always looked at was, you know, times really changed over the years, Jeff. I think in the beginning, the first eight or 10 years, People who had three or four jobs in five or six years, people thought it was bad. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, well, uh, I'd be saying, hey, why are you on your third job? You know, why did you only spend a couple of years here? And once that thinking changed, you know, I, I would ask people, hey, wh- why are we here? And why, why are we, we looking here? Oh, you know, my boss sucks. The accounts I have, I have suck. So I was always interested in, in what was the reason that you were looking for a job. And the other thing I, I never did in, I don't know, 30 years, of math, I never once called a reference. I got references for people, but if you gave me three references, I didn't call them. I called other people in the industry, right? people I knew, talked to end users. And one thing I, I would say was I was really blown away by this one guy. Knew everybody in New York City, had big time relationships, really, and, and did well. And uh, I called a couple of blind references and I said, hey, what do you think about John? He goes, hey, John's a good guy. He goes, you know, he gets his party hat a little tight. Mm. I kind of knew what that meant and I called another guy. I said, Hey, you know, I'm talking to John, blah, blah, blah. What, what do you think of him? He goes, yeah, really good before lunch. Oh, shit. You know, yeah. You know, the days you're going to go on calls with him. Lunch. You, yeah. you, you know, you got to get him before lunch. And uh, yeah, it turns out that the, the guy did kind of lose focus after lunch. Uh-huh. Um, and I always thought referrals were, were good. You know, somebody who knew who knew somebody, and you know, you'd have to 
really think twice. You know, if I hired a referral from you, I'm not looking at him. I'm looking at you. You know, right. And um, I think that kind of kind of helped. Yeah. Um, well, and we were the uh, I think the first generation uh, not to have the job for life. You know, yeah, IBM, AT and T, GE. You know, every you know that the generation before us. Uh, you know, they would. Yeah. Work. Uh, you know our parents and and things like that and i think we also came we were on the last uh, vestige of drinking you know at least heavily at lunch yeah know, kind of the mad men the end of the mad men yeah it doesn't exist today seven, yeah 100 percent uh interesting so with the guy the golfer the the you you did hire them and how did he work i did out? yeah i did good yeah okay good. He, he ended up being a, you know a good rep and uh and who was a better golfer you or him? Him. <laughs> he was. Well, and that's saying a lot. You were a good. Yeah. You were definitely a good golfer. Um, you know they, and you know later in life, I I worked for an Italian guy named uh, Flavio Santoni, and uh, uh, he was uh, a good leader. But more than being a good leader, I don't know why, but he took an interest in me. You know, he just he took an interest in. A couple of things he, he said was we were at lunch with a customer and he said he had an Italian accent. He said, stop it drinking beer. Stop it. So I go, OK. He goes, have a martini. Look professional. <laughs> and he said, I want you to read this book and I want I want to talk to you about the book. I said, OK. The book was called Building Relationships Through the Game of Golf. It was incredibly interesting. And essentially, the end result of the book is if somebody cheats you in golf, they're going to cheat you in business. 100%. They're going to cheat in business. 100%. They're gonna, they're gonna, and as it turned out, Fabio and I play with a big, big executive, a, a company that I manage. We got about $150 million a year out of this guy. And he cheated. He just, you know, and the guy we were with was so embarrassed about it. He just said, and what do you want me to put you down for? So, you know, that was, I think, one of the other phenomenons. As the drinking ended, the golf game, as, as a good way to spend professional relationship building became golf not drinking right the madman days i think it was a lot of drinking yes and it moved to to golf mm -hmm. and you didn't really i i i just recall one golf i did not golf growing up uh uh there was one time during senior week where we flipped over a card at van yeah. on golf course but um that's a, for another podcast but you didn't play much golf growing up did you no, you know why I started playing golf? After you read the book. <laughs> no, I started playing golf when I was working. My first job out of school was at IBM, and I noticed nobody was in the office on Friday. I'm like, hey, where, where, where are these guys? Oh, they've got customer uh, customer golf. I go, what? I go, no, no, they they bring their customers out out to play golf. And I was a kid rep. If my business 
expense was more than $50, I had to get it approved. Oh, jeez. I literally had to get it approved that I could take somebody out there. And I was like, this is this is some bullshit going on here. I'm in here at seven, eight o'clock at night. These guys are, and that that's why I started playing. Yeah. Interesting. I actually, that was very similar to me when I was at Sprint in their consumer services group for long distance. Same thing. People were leaving Friday afternoons. I'm like, where's everybody? They were golfing. So I'm like, yeah. I'm going to start playing, but I didn't really pick it up till I was in, in uh, my low. I, I also think it's probably true in today's day and age. If you're good or, 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 or you don't have to be good, but you, you have to be, you have to know the rules and play quick and be enjoyable. Right. You know, if, if, you know, if you're cursing and throwing, nobody wants to play with you. Right. But like our mutual, like Mark Seavers, I mean, if you're a good player and depending what industry your career is in, enormous opportunity. A hundred percent. An enormous opportunity just by being, having good etiquette and, you know, being kind of outgoing. Yeah, there's actually a, a lot of women's group in Kansas City that actually uh, are, you know, teaching women yep. golf and uh, business, you know, because a lot of and, you know, a lot of it is scrambles where you're, you know, not hitting your own ball. And, yep. you know, a, a, a really good women player uh, helps that uh, immensely. Yep. So interesting. Um, let's talk about IBM. Like you were one of the few people in college that actually had an internship during the semester. And uh, tell everybody how that came about and how that shaped kind of the beginning of your career. Obviously got a job with IBM, but. Basketball. You know, guy shows up Sunday night at Dratty Jim, Mary Jane. Oh, I can't remember. Mary Beth Fallon's brother. Said, uh, hey, I went here, you know, my sister told me, you know, I asked for you. I had no idea what the guy did. He, we used to play basketball Sunday night, just up in the gym. Coming around April or May, he goes, what are you going to do for the summer? I don't know. Hope I don't have to go back to Staten Island. But <laughs> he said, you know, blah, 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 come in, talk to this woman. And, uh, Luckily, before I got there, Mark met me out in the lobby, and I was in a tan leisure suit. <laughs> a leisure suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't get and, too close to flames. And he was like, oh, man, this, this isn't going to work. And I said, uh, I said no, you, you need like a blue suit or something. Eastman, I said, I, I, I don't have one. So can you borrow one? Can you, can, can you get one? We'll, we'll reschedule. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll figure it out. I can't remember who in the door might borrow, but I have to borrow a suit and, and go down. So I did that for the summer. Um, and it was a lot of grunt work. It was a lot of work nobody wanted to do. Sure. You know, it was... Uh, my God, going through pages and pages, documentation and picking out what terminal a customer needed. And because I did it, I guess, pretty good, they were like, hey, you want to keep doing it? Because nobody else wanted to do it. Right. 
You know, who the hell wants to go through, oh, check this, eight feet, we need an eight-foot cable. Nobody, I mean, no grown man wanted to do that. So um, I think I got to stay on um, two reasons. One, I wasn't a pain in the ass, really. You know, I just came and went. But uh, I, I didn't really complain about it. You know, and the key thing was minimum wage back then was $4.05 an hour. <laughs> IBM was paying me nine seventy, So I was like, wow. Yeah. I told my kids, you know, my first job was nine seventy an hour. Unbelievable. Like, I go, hey, minimum wage is four oh five. You know, you're working in, in food services in Manhattan, they're paying you four oh five. Incredible. Well, and and you know, when we graduated, it was eighty-two, one of the worst recessions, if not the worst one of all time. Absolutely. And actually, I was supposed to work for IBM, and and it was because of I interviewed with six managers. The one called me back immediately. You know, obviously no uh, cell phones at my you know mom's house, and said, "I really want you. You know, you'll hear from HR in a week if you don't call me back." And he really liked me because IBM had a uh, company football team. You know, <laughs> there you go. So anyhow, I took an interview between uh, the time of that call and um, and the week. It was the day after Memorial Day and it was with AT&T, a whole day interview for their management uh, training program in, in software development. And I almost did it on a lark. I figured, well, it's a free lunch. It was a day after Memorial Day, which is not, you know, the, usually the, you know, the best day to interview. But I'm like, I did it. But I was very relaxed. I did have to take a, a software aptitude test. I did pass it, obviously. And they had no openings. And I did. I said, that's fine. They said, are you willing to relocate? I said, Sure. But I'm thinking I got a job with IBM and IBM had their first hiring freeze in their history in 82. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I did end up in Kansas City at uh, at at I, I I get asked a lot. Was my lifetime objective was my goal to get into sales? Are you all? Hell no. My I got hired at IBM uh, before we finished school. Sixteen thousand eight hundred dollars. I was an A, my offer was AAS, Administrative Account Specialist. AAS or ASS? Well, I was an ASS, but <laughs> Administrative Account Specialist. That was it, AAS. Wow. And I got sent to training in Atlanta, Georgia. And there were quads. There were four people in your quad. However, there was all sorts of different training going on. Engineering, sales. I, I was in the Administrative Account. Wow. About the third day, one of my sweet mates gets called up, got sent home. Sent him home. Was out one night, the club was doing something he didn't do. And wow. well, they made an example of him in front of us, sent him home. Well, week two of my three week training, I get called up. And the guy says, You need to uh, call your branch manager, uh, Don Snyder. He needs to speak to you right away. Oh, shit, what the hell did I do? Oh, my God. I go, pick up the phone. Didn't even have my name right. <laughs> he goes, Eastern. This is Don Snyder. Branch, I go, hi. Oh, Mr. Snyder, how are you? 
he says, look, we got to make this real quick, but uh, I've got a sales opening here. And based on some aptitudes and people in the office think you might be pretty good at it. So I want to convert you from a AAS to a, a sales rep one. And uh, okay. So I said, could you tell me a little bit about it? And he goes, well, the salary is 19,200 sold. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I, I go, go, wow. I go, I just, so I came back. And uh, people look at me like, everything all right? I go, I just got 20% raise. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how I ended up in it. Yeah. Just, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So um, you've had an unbelievable career in in IT and and, and the tech space. Um, So what were some of your... um, kind of highlights, um, you know, I'd like to hear about, you know, you've worked for Fortune 500, you work for, you know, startups, you've been involved in IPOs and, you know, mergers and acquisitions. So it's kind of. I think, I think early on, you know, I had had three or four or five different jobs. And um, I think the reason I liked what I did was because, the money was good, but I, I, I put so much pressure on me, you know, and I was always chasing a dollar. That was it. And I thought everything kind of revolved around me and my work and how much work I made. You know, the one thing I would I would have changed would have been to get mentors earlier, mm-hmm. you know. We used to call them rabbis back in the day. <laughs> you know, you have a rabbi who looks after you. But I had a couple of rabbis who, for whatever reason, I mean, I still don't know to this day, took an interest in me. And and once I learned that the company you work for has to do good by you. They have to do well by you just as much as you do well by them. I didn't realize that till. I was 10 years into work. You know, I didn't realize it was a career, Jeff. Right. I thought it was a job and a way to make a money. Money. Right. It's not. It's a career. It's a lifestyle. Right. And and once I kind of realized that, you know, I'm giving you 40 hours a week of, of good effort, not great effort. I'm giving you really good effort. It's your responsibility as a company you got to define products better. you got to engineer different products. You're expecting me go, to go out and sell pencils when everybody else has a pencil. So once I got to a company that did that, that had really well-engineered and differentiated products, shit, it was easy to sell. Shooting fish in a barrel. And what was that company? Storage dimensions. Okay. It, it was my first entrance into the storage business, which, by the way, knock on wood, for the last 20 years has been the greatest industry in the world. Right. You mean uh, movies, all that is stored. Everything is yeah. stored. The data explosion, but storage dimensions looked at it like I got to build a better mousetrap. And I had a year where 
my earnings almost tripled because they had a product nobody else had. Back to the Novell Network days. Right. People will call, I mean, imagine being a sales guy. That's when John came to work for me. And Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs, I was in New York, Merrill Lynch, these sons of bitches are calling you. Right. Hey, Jeff, can, can you come in and talk to me about this? And I kind of learned a little bit about storage and it had a different decision-making criteria. And at that same time, one of these rabbis had said, you got to build relationships. You got to, you got to build business relationships. And that's what we, we tried to do. But if you're all in, you, you want the company all in with you, you know, and it, it, it's different type of things. You can work for a company and you, you go out to corporate and they're putting you up at the Motel 6. Telling you to eat at McDonald's, hey, grab some McDonald's on the way here. That, that right. you know, and then when companies who treat you good and treat you respectfully. Um, but I think that was for me such a big learning experience because it taught me to not only have relationships outside of work, you need a relationship with an engineering manager. You know, when you come out to corporate, you better go out to the production facility and buy everybody pizza and beer. Because you know what's going to happen? One end of, one Friday at the end of the month, you're going to want something shipped. Right. You go, you're going to want it shipped. Before five o'clock. <laughs> and, and you're going to want it shipped because you're in double commission accelerators. Right. And if this thing ships, it's about $10,000. If it ships Monday, it's about $2,000. So we kind of learned, or I learned, that you've got to have friends everywhere. Right. And, you know, it's okay to throw out a couple of your own dollars and buy pizza and buy, but, you know, you could call up the production guys on a Friday and be like, hey, I got to get this, got to get this shipped. Got to do it. Quota. Um, so, yeah, so you're, you're, I think you're referring a lot about culture. So did it, did you see a correlation between the, the CEO and uh, his or her personality and what the culture was like? Uh, tell, you know, tell me about that. Yeah. So I, I think the exec staff or the leadership of a company takes on the personality of the CEO or the founder. You know, I, uh, I've had CEOs who would go out and have drinks with you and, you know, party is not the right word, but they would be entertaining. They would go out and be entertaining. So was his exec staff. You know, they took on their person. The CEO was stoic in all business. Well, people were all business. Right. But the sales teams, for me, always took on the personality of their leader. Not the VP of sales, not the president, their direct boss. Right. 
And, you know, if he looked the other way, he, you know, cheated on his expenses, or if he, you know, put in an extra hundred miles, they did. Right. And I think culture, you know, my last six years were a company called NetApp. They acquired LSI. They talked about culture. They gave every employee an extra day off if they came in the top 25 places to work. They were very focused on it. Five days to volunteer, five volunteers days. Uh, free fruit. High-end coffee makers in the room. You wouldn't think that meant a lot. It, you know, it did. It kept you from going out to get coffee. Right. Like when I worked in New York, I was always going to Starbucks or walking out. Yeah, something that take you 45 minutes. You didn't have to do that at NetApp. It's all right here. Right. So I I would say the first 20 years I worked, I never would have thought culture made a difference. Last 10, 15 years, I think it does make a difference. Yeah, I think it's especially important now and you know we can get into a whole conversation about the pandemic yeah. and how that changed the you know the work life and you know obviously remote work and things like that um did you see in terms of the culture so i think you sometimes home offices have resentment towards sales and i think sometimes oh, yeah. home offices headquarters embrace sales uh, the latter is usually the better but did, did you did you see examples of that throughout your career with the many different companies you work for yeah I, I i think you have to trust people you know but you also can't be afraid to to cut the cord you know somebody right. tells you they're working at home and there's ways to check you know right. there, there, there's ways to check um, you, you want in, in sales or in what I did, you want a culture of accountability, you know, and I always believed, and there are people who disagree with me on this, but I always believed in the sales arena, but in business in general, people want to be led. Mm -hmm. They want to be managed. I agree. They want leadership. They, they 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 want a relationship with you inside and sometimes outside of, of work. But people want to be led. They want to be managed. And whether they're remote or in the office, you, you have to manage them. And when you go out to corporate or if you've got a senior enough position where you're a corporate all the time, people take notice. You know, they 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 take notice that. You you have to you have to manage people. Like I hear, I haven't you know somebody told me once I haven't talked to my boss in three weeks. I'm like what? What? Because I haven't talked to my boss in three weeks. He goes, I used to talk to you three times a day. I go, well, not three. He goes, Eastman, three times a day you would call me. I go, well, at the end of the quarter I would. You know, at the end of the month I. Where I are would. you? Where are you yeah. at? <laughs> That's crazy. Well, uh, yeah, one of my companies, uh, Eritana, there was a one of our executives was remote, and the person that worked for uh, her had not didn't talk to her for weeks on end. I was like, how can that be possible? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it just uh, 
Oh God. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, sometimes you see resentment, like especially with, uh, you know, finance, accounting. You know, they no, see no, you know, salespeople make so much money. Blah, yep. blah, blah. I go, yeah, but this is what makes money for all of us here. You know, right? <laughs> but they don't understand I, that. They and just you see know, salaries. A, a lot of, I would say, really, the last ten or fifteen years, sales has always had club trips, presidents' clubs, whatever you want to call it. You know, make your quota, overachieve your quota, be one of the top hundred guys. You get to go on a nice trip. But ten or fifteen years ago, that changed. You started allowing other people to come. Salespeople could nominate people, so you'd have marketing people. You'd have customer service people. You'd have accounting people. And I think that changed the club trip because goddamn people hated club trips. Oh, how was Hawaii? How was it? Was it nice? You guys were in Hawaii last week for a club trip. How was it? It was nice. All right. Yeah. Hey, uh, you, you guys, how was that sales meeting you guys had? That must have been nice, huh? You guys are, yeah, yeah, it was nice. So, you know, you have to reel it in a little bit. But now I think that when a NetApp or a Cisco, when they do club trips, they allow other people to be nominated or to earn part of the trip. Yeah. But there will, there, there's always, you know, the side eye of sales guys. And you know, you know what, too? Some of it we brought on ourselves by going out to corporate and leaving at three o'clock on Thursday. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, you know, President's Club trips are different from, you know, like national sales meetings. You know, we'd always go yeah. to nice places for national sales meetings. And, you know, people would say, oh, you were just in San Diego or, you know, wherever we went. And I'm like, it must have been great. I'm like, no, I, I'm literally on from 7 a.m. to midnight. Yeah. And I'm yep. exhausted, but I come home. I'm like, I, you know, like I'm talking work basically yep. for the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. So, um, so what are some, <laughs> I, what, what's the craziest thing a customer asked you to do? Wow. I ha I've had over the years, a lot of hire my kid. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of, but some around tickets to sporting events. Yeah. Major sporting events, probably. Super Bowl when it was in the Meadowlands. Right. Five or six customer. You know, hey, we can move this PO into the quarter. You know. Right. Um. But the craziest thing that ever happened in front of a customer was when I worked at Hayes, my first real management job, yeah. real big quota. And Hayes is the one you were out in uh, Portland, uh, Lake Oswego, that, was that Hayes? Uh, no, yeah, I, I relocated out there with the same guy. Okay. But it, it was the modem guys. Okay. Cool. And uh, Jerry, his wife was a high-end recruiter, a big uh, contract recruiter. So I got an appointment at Goldman Sachs of all places. I mean, I'm managing sales guys three weeks, a month. We go and we go to, I get up on a whiteboard and blah, 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 blah. You couldn't sniff a million dollar deal back then. You couldn't sniff it. 
this deal's a million two hundred thousand dollars and the guy's like you know we need to get these as soon as we can how, how soon can you get these we go to get up and leave and his briefcase pulls back this son of a bitch took the guy's work directory oh jeez put it in his briefcase to give to his wife oh jeez <laughs> i called the cops oh my god wanted to have us arrested it was insane my office was in white plains i took the train we were in one of the shared office facilities and she can't get out of her mouth fast enough Mr. McGovern, you need to call Dennis Hayes. Dennis Hayes has called you and he wants you to know that it's him calling, nobody else. I called him up. Dennis Hayes, the motor was named after the guy. Right. He's the founder. <laughs> yeah. What the hell happened? First thing I said was, I, I have nothing to do. I had nothing to do with this. And he goes, Well, you can't, first of all, you can't work here anymore. I go, Well, wait, Dennis. I had nothing to do with this. Nothing. This guy evidently took the... Why would he do that? I said, because his wife's a headhunter. So, I mean, they kept their eye on me for, for a while. <laughs> but I kept thinking to myself, nothing. Nothing crazy could ever happen. But I, I never had somebody ask for money. You know, like a kickback. I've had a couple of customers abuse the entertainment. You know, try to order a four or five hundred dollar bottle of wine. You know, a guy hasn't sure. eaten steak in two years. He wants to have a uh, forty-eight ounce tomahawk and one to go. <laughs> so Did you know, you, you got it. <laughs> and look, the only way you learn how to maneuver that is experience. Right. They don't they don't teach you in sales school when the guy orders the four hundred dollar bottle of wine and the steak, they don't tell you how to handle that. Did you ever have the guy, and I'm gonna say guy because it would never be a woman because women are more evolved than men, but did you ever have the guy at dinner that ordered multiple entrees, not to take home, but the actual yeah. oh yeah. 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 That was always incredible. Yeah. Um one and time then, I, you know, you 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 got to eventually you got to hand in the expense rate. You got to hand it in. Exactly. I, I uh, one time when I was selling for um, IntelliQuest, I I took a uh, prospect who I knew I had worked with at Sprint PCS to um, Pelican Hill Golf Course in Newport Beach. Beautiful course. Very you played there. Very end. nice. Yeah. 300 300 a play they call it pep they call it pebble beach south yes 100 it's beautiful i mean the view is incredible so we finish up you know i buy him lunch we're you know having a couple beers while we're playing so you know i'm uh we're going to his car to put his clothes in <laughs> so i hadn't noticed all day but he had a pelican bay you know uh bag uh tag i go i go how did you get one of these he goes oh so-and-so brought me out last week he played with my competitor the week before the same course no. i literally called him a vendor rapist i go you're you're, you're a rapist i mean it's incredible um, yeah they're a yeah 
So like Eastman, you've managed, led so many people, but you uh, were one of the first people I know that got really into the um, LGBTQ um, era, I'll call it. I mean, I, and you'll walk, walk me through the story, but I, if I recall correctly, you had somebody that worked for you or someone on your team that went through a sex change operation. And I had never, I mean, I knew it, it could occur, but I had never heard anyone in the workplace had anybody work for them while they were doing it. That was the first yeah. time. Yeah. You know, I, I spent a lot of, most of my career in Silicon Valley headquarters. You know, I didn't work there, but I spent a lot of time traveling to and from. So um, I had had some gay people work for me, you know, um, and uh, I had a guy who worked for me 11 years, Jeff, reported to me for 11 years. And I don't know, I just, I always found him a little odd. And he didn't drink. So I thought maybe it was, you know, this is a, at time, an alcohol intensive business, kickoffs, sales. Sure. And uh, I, I said, I, you know, probably that you know, struggles maybe drinking you know doesn't drink maybe whatever reason then i got a call you know from an outside attorney who was contracted with NetApp. we had eleven thousand eight hundred employees at the time and i'll say that again eleven thousand eight hundred employees at that time and she said one of your employees is transitioning I said, to a new job, to, to a new role, no, transitioning, never heard the word before, never, and the gal in HR, who, was, who I considered a friend of mine, uh, the outside attorney said, well, I'm, I'm sure you know what this is about, and I said, I have no idea, and the woman in HR was so taken back, so she goes, I forgot to tell him, he has no idea. And they explained it. One of my direct reports was going through, was going to transition to a woman. And uh, we had never had that before. Just under 12,000 employees in Silicon Valley. Kind of surprising in today's day and age that it wasn't, we never had anybody. We had no policy, nothing. And for him, him at the time, um, we weren't offering any financial help or anything. And he was bitter, very, very bitter, threatening lawsuits. And, you know, he and I came to a, an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding between the two of us. And I said, I'm going to run this all the way up, CEO. We need to understand each other. So you'll be him until we break for Christmas break. And then you do what you have to do and we'll announce it while, while you're out. But come to work as, as him and da-da-da. Next goddamn day, shows up in a dress and a wig. Huh. And that was difficult for everybody sure and uh we had to develop a policy and um 
I went to a class out in California. And uh, this is not for comical effect. This really happened. And I went out to the class and the instructor the first day came over and said, oh, you must be Eastman. Um, we missed you last night. They had a little reception. And I said, yeah, you know, I came in from New York. I just, You're very early in your transition. <laughs> I, I said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not transitioning. She goes, this is a class all week for transitioning in the workplace. I go, well, I'm not transitioning. <laughs> I have somebody that's doing it. And I wanted to leave. And, you know, I called corporate. I ended up with the CEO. Somebody went and got me on the phone with me. And, you know, he left. He left. You know, left a little bit. And he said, do me a favor. Stay. We got to get our arms around this, Eastman. We, we, you know, you're at the for we're at the forefront. You're at the forefront. We gotta, right. we didn't gotta come up with a policy. We we gotta understand this. And uh, I stayed the whole week, and part of it was incredibly rewarding, but also part of it was very sad. How people struggled. No, I'm sure. Maybe, maybe some for five years, some for ten years, some their their in, entire life. But um, right before I left, we had finalized uh, NetApp's policy on transgender and transitioning in, in the workforce. Wow. And I, I think, I think it's more common, Jeff, today. Oh yeah. Than, than it was when we when we started. Oh, yeah, 100%. Actually, my last year at Beringer Ingelheim, they put in, which would have been 2013, that year, it, they actually paid for um, uh, changing genders. They they yeah. paid for the, the whole process. Gender reassignment, yeah, GRS, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, wow. I I I just remember that and you were the first person I ever knew of that went had to go through that and had somebody have the change while working for him. So while uh, while working and calling on customers. Right. I mean in a customer facing role. Right. Did you lose any customers based on that? Yeah. Was it the reality? We yeah. did. We lost yeah. yeah, we did. Yeah. So I most most customers said can't happen anymore. this can't be happening you assign me a new rep you know you need to yeah. assign me a new rep I said, we right. can't do that yeah. i said it, it, it's illegal and he said eastman we're gonna have to yeah we'll find another vendor but this this won't work here now she eventually went to work she's still there she eventually went to work for ibm okay bigger company more yeah. programs more inclusive and the uh, last time I talked to her was maybe a year ago. There were over a hundred um, people at IBM who have transitioned. Right. 75 transitioned while there. Wow. She did not transition at transition right. at IBM, but she, you know. So, you know, again, your career has been uh fantastic from that you know you have you've you've done so many things you've been involved in so many things so 
Um, you were also in the uh, internet uh, boom and bust period uh, with, yes. I believe, Sitesmith. Very true. Yeah. So, so tell a little bit about that and how that evolved and uh, well, yeah, it, how did Sitesmith compare to other companies? Because obviously it was a startup. Uh, yeah, Sitesmith was really the first uh, startup I worked for. I mean, incredibly well-funded, but these two guys, they were younger than I was, you know, had this vision of the office as a meeting place. All the other vendors in the internet space could get together, share leads, share deals. We had a bar in the office, Jeff. Kegs of beer. Yeah. Desks on wheels. I'm like, where's my office? <laughs> I'm going to run this shit show and there's no office. Well, you have an office, but my my walls were on wheels. <laughs> and everybody's getting funded. I didn't know what the hell getting funded meant was. Right. But I had a bunch of prior relationships. And I was talking to my son about this and it was like it was almost like bitcoin because people would say you know i know you got a big time relationship at 1-800 flowers eastman i know you do well how do you know that that's what such and such told me so and so i said yeah what do you want he goes we're going public in three weeks we're going to give you some friends and family stock i'm going to give you some friends and family I need you to take me out to 1-800-Flowers and, and meet the McCanns. Uh -huh. There's all sorts of that horse trading going on. Right. You want to go here? I'll take you here. I'll get friends and family. And I'll give you the very short version, the 90-second version. But I had a guy that I was very friendly with named Mike, we'll say Mike B., who worked for a company called SNI, Storage Networks Incorporated, took the took the internet by storm. Tremendous concept. Tremendous idea of sharing storage. Putting ginormous amounts of storage in these data centers and sharing them so nobody has to buy their own. Fantastic. They raised about $180 million in funding. Could have raised more, but they didn't want to raise any more. They go in public. Mike says... Peter wants to give you a double share of friends and family. Double share? I won't tell you how many shares it was, but they went public at 36, closed that day at 106. 90% of the people who had friends and family sold that day. Yours truly would have also sold <laughs> that day, but my account number was at home. Oh, so I, I'm calling the house. Hey, I didn't. I sent the the, the president a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon. I sent Mike a bottle of Dom Perignon. I ran into the them months later, and Mike goes, "Hey, Dom, how you doing?" <laughs> and Peter said. You know, we gave a lot of friends and family. You're the only son of a bitch that 
called and thanked me? I know it was a voicemail, but you sent me a foul. I ran across Mike Baudet so many other times in, in deals. I mean, in, in, in deals. You know, when I was at LSI, our biggest account was Storage Tech. And they're blowing up, Jeff. They're blowing up. And they have a big national sales meeting. And Fabio, we, we went out. And Fabio says, this Mike guy is a, he's a, a prick. Oh, who? That's Mike B. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? He goes, Mike B. I go, I know Mike. He's a friend of mine. He goes, you know this guy. <laughs> yeah. I know this guy. He goes, he won't return calls. I heard we're out. They're throwing us out. Blah, 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 blah. We're walking into the hotel where the meeting is. And Mike's he goes, Jesus Christ, Eastman. Him over. He knew right away what was going on. He knew. And he was like, you know what? I, you know, he goes, Flavio, you got this guy working for you? You guys are all right. You guys are safe. He goes, Mike, we've been trying to call you for a meeting. He goes, I've been waiting Eastman. I wanted to talk to Eastman first and get a lay of the land. So you never know where a relationship, same thing with headhunters. You know, my son's going through a little bit of it now. I said, return the calls. You'll never, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll never, You'll never know. Right. Yeah, it's it's so true. Um, you know, Mark Sievers, uh, when he was on the podcast, had a very similar story, how he treated the assistant grocery manager, you know, so kind. His family would drop off cookies and crackers, and the guy uh, became, like, second in charge of AWG, a, you know, $8 billion yeah. Uh, you know, grocery store distribution. I mean, so, and, you know, and he would want Mark to be at these meetings where like this third in command. Senior, right. And it's just, it's just doing the right thing and building relationships and, you know. And, you know, it's, it's not, they're not as prevalent today as they used to be, but headhunters. I used to use headhunters to my advantage all the time. You know, and somebody had asked me once and said, Harvey Bass is a is an asshole. Like, Harvey Bass is very good at what Harvey Bass does. So if you can get a headhunter, if you had a relate back in the day now, if you had a relationship with a headhunter, they saved you, me, immeasurable pain. Because I got a rep, Mary Jones, who's no good. I got to get Mary out. I can't fire Mary. How do I manipulate to get Mary somewhere else where I can get somebody that can be productive? And I call my guy and say, hey, here's the deal. You got to help me move somebody and you get the fee on the next guy coming in. Guess how long it took him to find Mary a job? One day. Because he'd get paid twice. Right. <laughs> Harvey placed me at LSI. Okay. Wow. And from the day I got there, I hated it. It's horrible. I worked for a guy who was horrible, terrible. 
used to take everything I did and put his name on it. Had me write, write weekly, weekly reports in the third person. So I'm on a conference call and he's repeating something that I did. So I, it was, I'll never forget, it was a Friday. And I called Harvey and I said, look, Harvey, I need to get out of here. Not a good fit. And he's like, can't do that. I go, why? Because you got a six months guarantee on me? He goes, no, no, no. Here's my home number. Call me at home. I said, Harvey, with or without you, I'm getting out of here. I, 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 I can't. This is not. So I called him at home. And he said, I got a call from Mike, who was a VP of Worldwide Sales at the time. And I said, yeah, I'm so, it doesn't pertain. He goes, well, he's removing your boss next Wednesday because I placed him in a new job. Wow. He does what you do. I found him a new job. And when I said to him, good, I'll start working on his replacement. He said, I already got his replacement. I said, who are you replacing him with? He said, Eastman McGovern. So you find another Eastman to replace Eastman. But you better find another Eastman. I, that was the longest job I had, 16 years. Wow. I would have left. Right. Wow. Now, Harvey broke every ethical rule in the book. <laughs> the old school recruiters. But the old school recruiters. Oh, geez. Hey, this guy's looking. Hey. So it's amazing how many people I think that you can touch in your career that can help you or hurt you. Mm -hmm. So I always used to tell people, how do you get ahead? People will be, how do you get ahead? How do you get ahead? My one thing, and John Walsh used to quote me all the time, I said, be a nice guy. Be a nice guy. No, just just try to be a nice guy. Yeah. And just understand that, like Mark, with Mark, second in command isn't always going to be second in command. Right. Yeah. One of the quotes I uh, really enjoyed uh, that I found out later in my career was, you know, when you have a choice to be right or kind, choose kindness. Sure. Yeah. Because you know, it's not about being right. Um, yep. So, again, uh, you know, incredible career, but you were involved in one of the worst tragic uh, things that ever happened in the United States of America, 9-11. What, walk us through your your, uh, your day at 9-11, and our good friend John Welch was uh, a part of that, too, because you guys worked together. But walk us, walk us through that. You know, I'm not a very religious person. I don't. I think I believe in God. Uh, John and I worked for a startup, um, incredibly well-funded. And the company was going to be something in the IT software space. Definitely. Based on the backers, the early product, the uh, level of acceptance. And CEO was a younger guy, and he wanted to be in New York. He, he just, he wanted to do business with Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and Lehman and Bear Stearns. He thought that was the way to make it and to IPO quickly. 
So he hired me, did an exhaustive background check on me, which I thought was weird. But And I brought John on, and we brought on one of our old SEs, and we were in two World Trade Center, shared office space. And it was such a good, it wasn't like an HQ that I always thought HQs, it was such a well-managed company out of London where they answered the phone and, you know, the, the, the coffee office and the common, and there were a lot of tech people. There were a lot of startups and a lot of small tech companies. And for me, living in Long Island at the time it was a pain in the ass to get there. I loved going to work. It was just guys were like, hey, did you know that Goldman was looking and just a lot of camaraderie and going on. And the company on 9-11 was having their an annual picnic out in California. And they asked John and I to, to come out. John didn't want to go because his oldest, it was his first day of school. And John decided not to go. We would have not traveled on that. We would have traveled the day before. And uh, I had some medical issues at, at the time. I had had some arthritis that was was pretty bad. And I was moving over. And uh, we were both on our way to work when the when they fell. So we were we were not there. But knowing people who lost their lives. And one thing that is not easy to say, it's a miracle, an absolute miracle that only 3,300 people died. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle. Yeah. And our entire floor that we shared the office with um, tried to leave and the fire marshal said no. Told them they'll stay. So everybody that was in the office that day and our floor perished, died. Yeah. And um, it became, I guess, five, six, seven months of just daily hearing somebody else that died. Uh-huh. You know, that died. Now, there were some enterprising people, a couple of which I know, I still know today, who started 912 selling selling stuff. Hmm. Don't worry about a PO. Don't worry about anything. You guys got to get up and running. Tell me what you need. Tell, tell me what you need. Right. Wow. It became a kinder, gentler city, but the IT space just nobody knew how to react because you've got Solomon Brothers as your account. Their entire data center blew up. Not not an office right you got a million dollar quota and 
you got to sell them 14, 15 million dollars of product to get back to get back up and running. Sales guys were like, well, you know, they don't want to pay. It was really a lot of discussion among salespeople, sales managers. How do you handle it? And how do you, not, not from an IT, how do you prevent it again? You got Penn Station, 900 trains coming in every day. You can't check every single train. Right. My, other than John, my three best reps left. Wives, their wives made them leave. Moved down to New York. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. And I still recall, uh, you know, you couldn't get phone service, but I called you immediately. I had a dentist appointment that day. I got out of it and I called you and uh, crazy that I even connected with you. That, you yeah. know, we, that we And we talked and I remember you just uh, being so distraught, I, I, obviously, because, you, you know, Customers you you built your professional careers around, you know, guys who you knew. I want to say some personally, but mostly professionally that you spent time building relationships with are no longer no yeah. longer around. How, how do you how do you call the wife and say, I'm so sorry that John died? Well, who are you? I was a storage vendor for 12 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you just can't, you just can't imagine. Um, and I know you, you went know, to it, many it, funerals it, and wakes for yeah. months afterwards. So, and you know, there's, it, it's kind of like the phone call I got on an employee transitioning. There's no, you, there's no experience. The only way you, you learn to do it is, you know, and you got, by the way, you got to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. It's not something, not something they teach you. Mm -hmm. They don't teach in college. You don't teach in grad school. They don't teach in sales training or any type of training. You know, how do you deal with it? Yeah. You know, try yeah. to figure it out. Yeah. Same thing with COVID, right? The, yep. The whole yeah. pivoting. I and mean, and, and, and that today, you know, I, I, I thought, I mean, it took me two or three years to learn how to manage remote salespeople. You know, make sure they're productive, you know, call logs. And right. you know, I don't know how I would have, how you could have, how people are maneuvering today. Right. Well, I think uh, the final, uh, it's kind of a two-part question. Uh, what advice would you have to uh, just a recent uh person you know whether that's out of college or making a transition into sales what 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 would one thing you would want to know when you just started out and then kind of a similar question but once you became a sales leader you know what would have helped you kind of become a better leader uh, sooner i think the first thing is is be prepared for your interview be prepared you know, know about the company, know what they've done. Don't be afraid to name drop that. Hey, I noticed that you guys have a new VP of engineering. You know, hey, you know, I saw that you guys moved your uh, London. Let the interviewer know that you know what's going on. 
And when you do get there, find a mentor. Find somebody that will show you the ropes, somebody that will teach you what everybody else won't. The rabbi. How to do <laughs> Find a rabbi. And I'm going to say something now, but I'm going to contradict myself when I talk about sales leadership roles. Don't be afraid to change jobs. In the beginning, don't. Better product, better compensation plan, more convenient to commute. And, and know that it's not just you. That was my problem when I first started. I wish I came to the realization that the company is as big a part of my success as I am. Right. But too long, I thought I, well, when I wasn't successful, I thought I was doing something wrong. You know, and a lot of times I was. But a lot of times the company weren't engineering. They weren't developing, you know. Network. The other thing I wish I learned, network. Network. You're selling storage and you're selling to Merrill Lynch. You can't sell to Goldman Sachs. You, you, you're trying to get in. You can't. You can't. You know what? Find the guy who's selling printers. Get friendly with him. Frustrate a little bit. Network in the industry. Right. Network outside of the industry. And, and touch as many people inside your company as you can. When you go out to corporate for sales training or you go out there to take a customer, meet people. And sales leadership, lead. Hold people accountable. Don't be afraid to call somebody out on the carpet. I mean, I first time I did it, I remember saying, it happened to be a female. I don't think that's important in the story. But I said, I asked her about a deal. I said, I need an update. She goes, blah, blah, blah. Da. I said, you know something, Mary? One of two things has happened. Customers lying to you or you're lying to me. In the next 45 minutes, I'm going to find out what it is. Because I'm going to grab my bag and walk down the street. So she goes, well, I'll save you the walk because I lost that deal three weeks ago. Right. Get to know people, you know? Yeah, that's what Nothing I was going to say. You, you, you built, you could, you could hold them accountable because you cared about them as people, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. No, you know, know the kids, know, know what's going on in their life. And contradictory to what I said before, don't change jobs. Mm -hmm. They tell you the, as a sales manager, I had to learn this a hard way, and which is why I got to spend 16 years in a spot. They tell you the grass is always greener. You know why? There's more horse shit over there. <laughs> There's more manure. <laughs> That's why. Everything ever told to me in an interview for a sales manager role or a VP job or a Second, third line manager? None of it <laughs> turned out to be true. <laughs> well, Eastman, it's been a pleasure. God, what a great career. Great. And I, I not only uh, you know, a lot of fun doing it too. Yeah. You've been a 
been uh, one of my closest friends and I, I cherish and I'm grateful for our friendship. All right. You're the best. See you, buddy. See you. I just love the episode with Eastman. Out of all the people I've interviewed to date, I've known Eastman the longest uh, period of time. And the thing about Eastman and all his friends and work colleagues will tell you, he has a story for everything. It's like any any event, any situation, Eastman has a story for. But he has an unbelievable career in the tech space. I mean, working for Hayes Modem with Dennis Hayes, the founder, that was the, you know, early Silicon Valley type, you know, rock star uh, entrepreneur CEOs. So I just thought it was phenomenal. Joe, what were your thoughts on the episode? You know, the one thing that I was thinking of when Eastman was talking about his leisure suit that he had on his interview made me remember back to uh, when actually about the time that you first met me, I was a consultant for Capgemini. And when I first interviewed with Capgemini to get that job that you met me on, it was interesting because I didn't know it at the time, but I already had the job based on the merits of my resume. They had already decided to hire me and they'd already gone to the client and promised me that I was going to start working the next Monday. So they were in a little bit of a bind. That is, they, they had just promised the client a consultant that they hadn't hired yet. And so they were pretty much committed to hiring me. I didn't realize that at the time, but when I went into the interview, I would have really had to do something stupid to mess up that interview. So I went in there and I wanted to make a great impression. So I was wearing my very, very best brown polyester suit from JCPenney. It was brown coat, brown pants, brown socks, brown shoes, and a real shiny brown tie. And I was so proud of that brown suit that I was wearing. And I went in there and sat down with the regional manager for the Kansas City area of, of Capgemini. And he looked at me and the first thing he said was, well, the first thing we're going to have to do is get you out of that suit. So the rest of the interview, I suppose, went okay. I got the job. And then I had to go back to Bannister Mall to the JCPenney and buy two of their very best gray suits. And um, I alternated those two gray suits, wearing them on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday and Thursday for the next three years at that client, wore the same two suits, just alternating every other day. Um, Luckily, we don't have those kind of challenges today, but in uh, 1989, that's the kind of thing that I had to worry about. Yeah, it's incredible for our younger generation listeners. Yes, we wore suits every day to work, so interesting time. In terms of uh, any leadership wisdom you want to impart on the uh, on the viewers? Yeah, I'm always reminded of the uh, quote from the great philosopher Stanley Hudson. One time when he said, I have been trying to get on jury duty every year since I was 18 years old. To get to go sit in an air-conditioned room downtown judging people while my lunch is paid for, that is the life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.